kinfolk. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Never forget that Sunday is always a holiday, not just a holy day, but it's a good day for celebration. Let's begin today with prayer. Almighty and resurrected God, healer of wounded souls and Savior, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto you. You are our guide and our destination. Amen. Today is the highest holy day in the Christian tradition, despite what Christmas may think about itself. Easter, in fact, is the highest holy day. It's our Resurrection Sunday. It's the day when Christians all around the world celebrate the peculiar and singular victory that our faith uniquely decrees to be the victory over the forces of death. It's a unique holiday compared to others. As most holidays, uh, both religious and secular, tend to look back towards some historic event. Now we do commemorate the historic events of Passion Week, uh, especially on uh, Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, and I hope you were able to join us for our Maundy Thursday service online. Those days we do look to the past. We reenact and remember the events that led to the passion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But today, on Easter, on Resurrection Sunday, it's a day above all days. It's, it's a time above time. Um, our view is in every direction and every time frame. Um, so Easter is both back and forward, above and below, and in, in every place. In other words, Easter is a holiday that celebrates things that happened, things that are happening right now, and things that have yet to happen but will happen. It's a celebration of the beginning and the end. This is the Alpha and the Omega. It's not simply a time when we light a candle in memory of something that happened once. It's a kind of apocalypse, um, but in the traditional sense of the word apocalypse, really meaning apocalypse just means to reveal the true nature of the world. Today we find out the way that things really are. It's, of course, not all just lilies and, and butterflies and happy thoughts, though. Um, the reality is that this revelation, this understanding, this information that was given to us required a profound and impossibly painful sacrifice. And I want to be clear that I don't mean sacrifice in the sort of modern, contemporary Christian idea of uh, the atoning sacrifice of the cross. We call it penal substitutionary atonement. It's a fancy word for a very specific kind of, of theology of the cross that was invented in America in the 20th century. Um, this idea that God demanded the death of an innocent as a substitute for our own personal sins. Um, that's not in the Bible, uh, and it's a misunderstanding of, of what is actually happening according to uh, St. Paul. God in Jesus Christ descended into death the same way that we all will descend into death. But being God was able to ransom us from the rulership of death. So today we celebrate because death is defeated, both in the past and the future totally and forever. To put it in mathematical terms, out of death comes nothing. But out of God comes life, all life. So when God descends into death, 
Out of death then comes life. But to say that death can be defeated without any sacrifice is, it's, it's a kind of a Pollyanna reading of the tradition because there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was a good man, who was a good Jew and a teacher and a rabbi. And there was a man who was falsely accused of a crime against the government. And the men specifically, who were supposed to be his friends and family, they either lied about him or they kept silent. And he was brutally arrested and beaten publicly. And the police who assaulted him tried to use his public humiliation in order to strike fear into the hearts of anyone who might try to follow him or behave in the way that he did. And he was killed by the death penalty, the capital punishment of his age, which was Roman crucifixion by the government. And again, this was all an attempt to instill fear in the people who might decide to do as he did. All of this happened. And now whether or not you believe in the, in the historic Jesus uh, or, or historically factual accounts of the events, and I personally, I don't, I think God gave us the Bible because the Bible is true. It's a, not a history book, it's a holy book. Um, so to me, these events are true because they happened and they are still happening. But we know for a fact that the Roman government executed thousands upon thousands of people in a similar fashion. And that today, still yet, the governments of the world, as we are seeing anytime we turn on our TV, are continuing to carry out this kind of terror on innocent people in order to strike fear into their hearts so that they'll obey, right? In order to keep them in line, in order to, as they say, ironically, keep the peace. The reality of Easter uh, is that it's empty if it's only a celebration of pie in the sky when we die and we dispose of the pain and the grief of that day. Grief is a profoundly human experience. And Easter involves confronting grief and making space for grief. Um, as disciples, as Christians, as people who take part in communion, we are made one in the body of Christ. And as human beings, as creatures blessed with the omniscience of consciousness, knowledge that will die, we're made one by grief. And to ignore any grief, the pain that haunts the sort of underside of resurrection is to ignore our humanity. And this is central to the faith of the disciples that we just heard about in the Gospel of John. Because the men failed. They failed to grieve. They failed in their test of faith, but the women succeeded. Uh, now, it's often said that Jesus was abandoned by all, but this is the misreading of the story. Of course, Judas betrayed him, Peter lied about him, and the other men fled and hid, but the women disciples remained by his side through the entire story, and they remained in their grief. They were grieving and stricken, but they, they, they stayed at the side of Jesus Christ. And, they, and, and, and this is exactly how it came to pass that the first evangelist of Jesus Christ was a woman, the apostle Mary Magdalene, the first evangelist of Jesus Christ. Um, so um, it could have been like Mary's grief there in the garden. 
Even seeing angels, she grieves. She grieves. I think about her grief when I balance it against the good news of the resurrection because it's hard to imagine. I've known grief, and I've been with hundreds of people as they close their eyes on this world and as their families grieve, and I've grieved in my own life. I, I was there when, my, own, when my, my biological father died. Something had happened. Something went wrong. He was only 58 years old. He was too young. It couldn't be the thing that, that, that we were being told it was. We couldn't imagine it. We couldn't bear it. The words were too hard to, to, to say. Um, our grief and our faith often hold us anchors um, taking up slack under a mile of salt water. That's the lived experience of our lives. And Mary awoke early, I think, and felt those anchor chains pulling her down. She went to the garden. I think the Holy Spirit may have taken her by the hand and said, come with me to this place where you may grieve. Mary's grief is real, unspeakably so. And we have known it in our own lives, or we will know it. And those who we love will stand in the dewy grass of that garden and and grieve and give voice to their pain. It's the hardest part. And it's not that we lack faith. It's not that Mary lacks faith. It's not that we can't take one another's hands, press our tear-stained faces into the shoulders of those who are still living and declare with all of the faith of the saints in heaven that, yeah, dad is not gone, mom is not gone, Jesus is not gone forever, our beloved is not gone forever. That's faith. And as I said, I've gone through this with hundreds of people, and I'm going to tell you that people don't lose their faith in the face of grief. That remains. But what grief means is this, at its very bedrock, it's, it's not that I don't believe that my beloved is in heaven. It's that in my grief, I desperately just want things to go back to the way they were before. That's it. That's the common denominator in grief. It's not a loss of hope. It's not a foreclosure of future joy. It's the arithmetic that says, I want things to go back to the way they were before. And to understand it at, at that level, the meaning of the resurrection means we've got to take seriously Mary's grief, the grief of the disciples, the grief of Jesus' family, that despite everything they're bearing witness to and despite their honest faith in his glory, they're human beings. And they desperately want things to go back to the way they were before. And they won't. They just won't. And Jesus knows this. I think it's why he says these kind of confusing words to Mary, uh, don't hold on to me, for I have yet not ascended to Abba. Rather, go to my sisters and brothers and tell them I'm ascending to Abba God, our Father, my God and your God. What does he mean, don't hold on to me? I think it's because perhaps, I think it's pretty likely that Mary's first instinct upon seeing her best beloved is to say, as any of us might say, thank God. Things can now go back to the way they were before. But that's not what resurrection is. And it's not what Easter is. And sometimes people who don't take our faith, our Christian faith, very seriously often dismiss resurrection as something like Jesus died and then he came back to life. Like he went back to being his old self. That's not resurrection. And that's not even reincarnation. Uh, Time doesn't go in that direction. But rather, on the other side of her grief, 
And despite the very real fact that things won't go back to the way that they were before, as we might want them to, it is for the glory of God that things would now be changed forever. And that's the promise of resurrection and Easter. It's not that things are going to go back to being the way they were before. We're living through a titanic change in our society and in our world and in our churches. And we may want things to go back to the way they were, but resurrection says that in the time to come, in the next time, in the next age, that God's glory is going to show us a new reality where the very real pain of death is consumed by the overwhelming light of victory. This doesn't take away or belittle our grief. It illuminates our faith without taking anything away from our experiences. So for God's sake, don't let them take away your grief. Grieve, if you must, for the way that things were. It's true, beloved of God, though, that things may not be able to go back to the way they were before, but faith stands beside us like an angel. Faith stands as Mary stood beside the empty tomb and makes us this promise that despite all of this, God's glory, glory is greater and that this change, this next thing, this difficult thing is going to be a victory that is so profound that when we look back at our grief, we're going to say with Brother Paul, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We'll say with Edna St. Vincent Millay, conscientious objector, I shall die, but that is all I shall do for death. It's a hard promise, but it's also a line in the sand. And this is why I don't often preach a lot about what happens after we die, because I'm like Mary. I'm grieving. I'm always wanting things to go back to the way they were before. And I emphatically don't know what God's overwhelming glory is going to look like, and this isn't doubt. It's faith. Because the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. My faith doesn't require certainty. It only requires me to stand as Mary stood. And any words I try to use to explain what's next will be as weak as a candle is to a burning star. But that candle lights the way. And so this is the light of that candle, weak as it is in the darkness of our common grief. This is the light of the candle of Easter. Death does not win. Death does not win. The victory today is vouchsafed, the promises made, the balance of the cosmic ledger has been determined, and death does not win. That's the story and hope and promise of Easter. It's not that things can go back to being the way they were before. It's that in any case, in every time, in every age, death doesn't win. Despite the ways that the powers and principalities of this world, the empires and tyrants, try to wield death like a lash and use the threat of death to try to drive us into submission, it turns out that death doesn't win. Is that enough, Christians? It was enough for me when, when my father closed his eyes. And I know that it will be enough for me when I close my eyes. And so my hope for you is that may the promise of the victory of the resurrection abide with you in your times of grief. And at the last, when we're able to look back at all of this with clear eyes, seeing through the glass clearly, when the dimness is gone, we're going to look to God and say together, thine is the glory, thine is the glory, hallelujah. 
Beloved of God, trust in the promise of resurrection. It is vouchsafed eternally, and it is for you and for all of God's creation. And so let God's beloved creation say, Amen.